The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Westway Christian Church. Glad that each one of you are here with us today. Go ahead and open your Bible, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to be reading from in a little bit. If you have any questions about today's message, you can just send a text to, um, to the number that's in your bulletin. It's also um, on the screen uh, behind me. And also, if you have a version app, the Bible app on your phone or on your tablet, you can follow along with our, with our time together, with our 1015 on that. Um, if you've been with us over the past few months, you know that we just finished a series on the Ten Commandments. And these ten laws, they are telling us about God's heart for his people, and they're a description of what God expects from his people who have just been freed from generations of slavery, from about 400 years of slavery. And one of the interesting things, and I'll touch on this again in a second, or this will come back up in a minute, is is the place where God gives these rules from is from a mountain. God is on a mountain. He meets Moses on a mountain to give his people these rules. But they weren't just rules. They were an invitation into a new life. And this new life was demonstrated by, by how they interacted with God vertically. And it was demonstrated by how they interacted with one another on a horizontal level. And if we were to keep reading through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomies, Deuteronomy, we would see that these laws are expanded and they're expounded upon. But ultimately, all of the laws that God has given his people in the Old Testament fall into two different categories. And there's two different focuses of these laws. The first one is tabernacle temple worship and its focus on ceremony. So if we were to read all of the laws in the Old Testament, one set of those laws is going to focus on tabernacle and temple worship and ceremony. And the second focus of the law in the Old Testament is the way people were to interact with one another through the moral and ethical observances that they have. And a read through the rest of the Old Testament reveals that as time passed, the people thought that as long as they lived out the ceremonial side, as long as they lived out the tabernacle worship and the temple worship, as long as they went to temple when they were supposed to, as long as they brought the sacrifices, as long as they followed those tabernacle temple rules, then they were being faithful to God. They were doing all they needed to do, and they were living out their end of the covenant that had been promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But God, through the prophets, told them that if their ceremonial responsibilities, if their attendance at temple, if their bringing of the sacrifices, if those things were not matched by the moral and ethical observances of the way they treated one another, the way they were expected and demanded by God, they would experience God's judgment. So this was not an either or. I don't follow the temple laws and ignore the moral responsibilities that I have with one another, but I also can't follow the moral responsibilities and ignore the temple laws. 
And this is really important because the way that they treated one another was to be an outward reflection of what was happening inside of them. So when they went to the tabernacle to worship to bring their sacrifice, or they went to the temple for temple worship and the sacrifice, that was, they were supposed to leave their change. They were supposed to leave there differently. And these were a people, and we read this in the Old Testament, these were a people who, who worshipped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And about a thousand years after the exodus... After the, after the time that we talked about the, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, about a thousand years after the Exodus, time ran out. In 597, the Babylonians attacked. They brought judgment upon God's people. And this was ordained. This was actually God's plan. So one of the things that, that we have to wrap our minds around when we read through the Old Testament is God was using Babylon to judge his people. He was using Babylon to judge his own nation. And about a year later, they marched in Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and the Babylonian captivity had begun. Eventually, the Jewish people would return home, and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple would be rebuilt. So this history matters. And over time something else began to happen. Emphasis shifted from the temple aspect to a focus on the moral and ethical observances of the people. So prior to the Babylonian captivity, the emphasis was on temple. Emphasis was on tabernacle. And if all I did was do the right things at the right time, then my relationship with God was okay. But after the second temple had begun, it flipped. The people began to focus on the moral and ethical observances. And, and here's where that came from, the synagogue. The synagogue took place. And, and what, you, what you began to see is, we would call them a church today. It's not quite the exact same thing, but we would call it a church today. All of these little synagogues, all of these little house churches began to be set up in all of these little different communities in all of these different towns. And what happened was the synagogue in Jericho did things a little differently than the synagogue in Hebron, which did things a little bit differently than the synagogue in Jerusalem because each one of them had a different teacher rabbi and they had, they had their own interpretations of how the law meant. So, as we are meant to do, as we are bent to do as humanity, each of these little interpretations began to be seen as having the same divine weight that the law had. So, for example, we might see that today in, although we don't have a communion table, there are churches that, that have had a real focus on the location of the communion table. It had to be up front or it had to be off to the side and it had to be covered with a certain thing or not covered with a certain thing. The color of the carpet, the color of chairs, all of these things. And, and, and what began to happen was these little interpretations that were taking place in all of these different synagogues began to have the same weight. They were given the same power by the people as the law itself. So you can see why this would then be a problem. 
Because the different ethical and moral observances were different in the different areas. I could follow one law here, one rule here, but if I go somewhere else, then I'm violating that law. And about 400 years after this second temple period began, a man named Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. At 12, he is found by his parents in the temple, and he's asking questions and hearing answers and amazing the teachers of the law all at the same time. And he returns home to them into relative obscurity to the town of Nazareth where he works as a carpenter. About 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. He begins teaching in these very same synagogues and he begins healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he's proclaiming it both as a, as a present kingdom, so it's happening now, and at the same time, he's proclaiming it as it's something that is going to come. And many people began to follow Jesus as this teacher, rabbi. Some of them were dedicated, and they were called disciples. Others were curious. They were religious to a point and they only followed Jesus for what he could give them. One day, Jesus was near the city of Capernaum. And interestingly, he went to a mountain where his disciples followed him to the top. His closest followers followed him up the side of this mountain while the crowd stayed below. And sitting down, he began to teach them. This is in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. You can follow along with me. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. 
I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't want you to miss what Jesus is doing on this mountainside in this text. He's describing life in God's kingdom, and he is inviting all of us, his hearers, to be a part of it. At one point, I made this little note in my Bible. These are not commands. These are just statements of who receives God's blessings. See, this is where it's very similar to the Ten Commandments. They describe what life in God's kingdom looked like. And just like in Exodus 20, when it began with, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery, that is a blessing. He's telling them who he is. He's telling them that he has given them the blessing of freedom from slavery. And Jesus describes, begins this message in very much the same way, by describing for them what it looks like to have God's blessings. And rather than a list of do's and don'ts, the list that Jesus is giving is is a list of how to be. He's talking about something that's going on inside of us. He's talking about a posture, an inner working. This is how you are to be. It's not only of doing but it is something that you are. And that's what God's kingdom is, is someone that you are. And this is really important for us to understand. The pathway to God's blessing comes when we are poor and when we are in recognition of our need for God. The pathway to receiving God's blessing comes when we're mournful and we're sorrowful over our own sin. The pathway to receiving God's blessing comes when we are humble. See, That's something that we have to be. Not when we do humble acts, but when we are humble. The pathway to receiving God's blessing comes when we hunger and thirst for justice. And this is God's justice. The pathway to blessing comes when we possess a pure heart. The pathway to blessing comes when we work for peace. The pathway to blessing comes when we are persecuted for doing right and for following the way of Jesus. And interestingly, back in Exodus, remember, there was no warning or punishment for not following these commands. They were just given. They were presented. This is what life looks like in my kingdom. If you want to be in my kingdom, then you'll follow these commands. No warning, no threat, no punishment. You just won't be in the kingdom if you don't want to follow these things. But it's a little different in Matthew chapter 5. Here there's actually a penalty for keeping the list. When we live the way God calls us to live, 
When we are different from the inside out, if we live in accordance with God's kingdom, we're going to be mocked and lied about. We're going to be punished for doing these things. But interestingly enough, it's not presented as a punishment, is it? It's presented as an honor. Listen again to verse 12. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. When we are persecuted for doing right, it's not a punishment. It's an honor. It's a responsibility. It's a joy. And my guess is, for many of us in the room, that's not how we think. We think of persecution as a bad thing. And obviously, hurting someone else is a bad thing. But what Jesus is telling us here is to live for him and to be persecuted and punished for living for him is an honor. We should consider that a joy. We should consider that a blessing. Because that is the example that he sets for us. And once we're living out this transformation, Jesus tells us through the metaphors of salt and light how we will impact the lives of others. And throughout time, salt has been used for lots of different things, right? It's a seasoning. It's a preservative. It's even been used for currency. And I think any time I've ever heard a sermon about being salt— there's always been a warning against being too salty. We want to be just a little salty, right? Because too much salt, that ruins everything. Has anybody ever heard that sermon before? You don't want to be too, much, too salty. You don't want to be overly salty. Well, that's where I was headed initially in this message as I was, as I was working on it. Because that's what, I've, that's what I've always heard. That's how I've always interpreted it. And in fact, that's, that's what I've said in the past. Just be, just be a little salty. Add a little bit of flavor. Add a little bit of seasoning. But then I did something really weird for a pastor. I looked at the verses again. And I read them again. And I read them again and again and again. Listen to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. See, Jesus isn't warning us against being too salty. Jesus is warning us against not being salty enough. Jesus is warning us against losing our flavor, against losing our saltiness. He's actually calling us to be more salty because we are often not salty enough. But being salty does not mean being offensive. So before you go home today and fire up the Facebook rage machine, okay, it's not what Jesus wants us to do. That's what, not what it means to be more salty. It means being faithful. 
We won't lose our saltiness if we remember our own need for God. But we will if all we ever do is tell people how much they need God. We won't lose our saltiness if we mourn over our own sin. But we will lose our saltiness if all we ever do is point out the sins of other people. We won't lose our saltiness if we're humble. But we will if our mission in life is to be bold and abrasive and offensive. We won't lose our saltiness if we pursue God's mercy. And God's mercy looks like mercy and love and grace and his justice. It looks like reconciliation. But we will lose our own saltiness if all we do is hunger and thirst for our version of justice, which looks like retribution and revenge. We won't lose our saltiness if our hearts are pure, but we will when we operate out of false motives and impure hearts. We won't lose our saltiness when we work for peace, but we will if we actively pursue trouble and say and do things just to irritate people. We won't lose our saltiness when we say and write and do good things, but we will lose our saltiness when all of our ideas are our ideas and not his. When we do not live our lives in a way that God would have us live, we lose our ability to speak truth into the lives of people who need to hear it most. Many Christians have lost their ability to be a prophetic voice into our culture because we've chosen worldly kingdoms over God's kingdom. When we do this, you can't speak truth into the culture because we're playing to the same coin, just the other side. Far too many Christians have equated their faith with their nation state. And, we are, and when we are known more for our political stance or our cultural position than we are for our agreement with and our dedication to Jesus as Lord, you are not being salty. You are losing your salt. And like the Ten Commandments before in Exodus chapter 20, this kingdom living is an expectation. What Jesus is laying out for us here in Matthew chapter 5 is an expectation of life in the kingdom. If you want to receive God's blessings, then these are the things that you are going to do. And if you don't do them, conversely, if you don't do them, you're not going to receive God's blessings. The pathway for us to have the life that God wants for us is to live in accordance to what he says brings life. It's to live in accordance with what he says brings blessings. So we want to be salty. We want to follow these things to the T. We want to go beyond these things in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. This is what a salty life looks like for us. So be salty. But Jesus also said, be light. A light can't be hidden. This kingdom living that that Jesus is describing in Matthew 5 for us is meant to be lived boldly. It's meant to be lived unashamedly. It's meant to be lived in public. 
it will stand out and it will be seen. It will be seen like this lamp. A life that flows from being godly will be dramatically different and people will flock to you. They see you loving. They will see you living your life in love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And they won't praise you because when they start to praise you for the way that you live your life, the role and the responsibility of the Christian in that moment is to point to Jesus. They will, create, they will praise God. We are to be like a lamp. I got a text last night from Jim. There are 295 light bulbs in this room. When they're turned up all the way, this room is pretty bright. Imagine if we were living in the way Jesus describes in Matthew 5. If we were living this way in Scotts Bluff and in Gearing and Mitchell and Morrill and all of the places that we live around. What God would be doing would not be able to be hidden it wouldn't be able to be unseen. Because what God does can't be hidden. When it is of God, you can't hide it. It will be seen. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. Then as I was reading these verses, I don't know about you, but these last four verses seem to, seem to kind of come out of nowhere. Jesus spends all this time talking about how as believers we're supposed to live as live our lives as, as inside-out kind of people, and then he jumps into talking about the importance of keeping the law. So I was reading through this text. It was like a little disorienting to me. Why, why would Jesus spend all of this time talking about how Christians are, how believers are supposed to be and how that's going to impact the lives of other people? And then, and then he starts talking about the law again in my Mind, it didn't make any sense. So, again, I did something weird. I just keep, kept reading it. And here's, here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's warning us against a foundationless morality. He's warning us against a foundationless morality. Our actions stem from who we are. So, if we don't have a basis, if we don't have a foundation, anything we build is going to fall apart. And Jesus is reminding, because he's talking to his disciples here, he's not talking to the crowd, he's not talking to the people who are only kind of interested in what he's doing, although they hear him, as we'll read later in Matthew chapter 7, they hear what he's saying, but he's talking to his disciples, and he is warning them, just like he warns us as his disciples against a foundationless morality. And here's the thing. Jesus is not saying the law is your foundation. It's the giver of the law that is your foundation. 
And this is why earlier we talked about the law as a revealer of God's heart for his people. The Ten Commandments weren't just some thing that God came up with one day. Yeah, let's, let's have them follow these rules. No, those Ten Commandments were built upon and based upon who he was, which is why we have a commandment like, don't covet. Because that's not a law that we would probably come up with. If we were giving ten laws for all of humanity to follow, we probably wouldn't add, do not covet. So a law like, do not covet, tells us something about God's heart. And as we're going to see over the next three weeks, each of Jesus' moral instructions has a basis, it has a foundation on something that's firm and secure. See, Jesus was separating himself from the other teachers and rabbis of his day who, who were basing their teaching on their interpretation and their understanding of the law. As the teacher rabbi... Jesus is giving the interpretation of the law because he is the one that came up with the law in in cooperation between the Father and the Holy Spirit. And don't send me a text this week asking me to explain the Trinity because there's not enough time to do that. But in conjunction with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they created the law together. So Jesus' interpretation of the law is the right interpretation. It's the only correct interpretation. So he is pointing back to it as the foundation. His moral and ethical standards are based on God's word. And kingdom righteousness comes from the inside out. It's initiated by God through the work of Jesus on the cross, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. And this produces changed hearts, and it produces new motivations, which leads to the law in action. See, when we have changed hearts, we do these things. They compel us to do these things, and this is how we exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Following temple rules and ceremonies that don't lead to moral and ethical observances, that don't lead to the way we treat one another, what that does is that creates Pharisees. So if all we do is follow the rules of the faith, in the Old Testament it was show up to the temple, bring the sacrifices, keep the commandments to a T. As long as I do those things, then all that does is make me a Pharisee, and that's all it does for you. It makes you a perfect adherent to the law, but it doesn't affect the way that you interact with other people. And then here's the flip side of that. Moral and ethical observances without the foundation of God make us good, morally upright people who are destined for hell because we have no moral foundation. Because the moral foundation shifts and changes with the times. And true righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. This is how we have this greater righteousness. These things that we're going to be hearing about over the next three weeks, they're not just, they're not just for us as individuals, they're for us as a body of believers. 
And I've said this a million times, but the way we are with one another is a proclamation of the gospel. The way we treat one another, the way we talk to one another, or the way we don't talk to one another, the way we might ignore one another, we're proclaiming something about the gospel that we believe. And when we act in the former way, and we love one another, and we care for one another, and we honor one another, we're proclaiming a true gospel. We're proclaiming the power of a changed life. But when we live in the latter and we, we don't honor one another and we hold grudges, then we're not living in the way that Jesus would have us live. We're not proclaiming a true gospel. If you're a Christian here today, your challenge is to live a salty life. A salty life described by Matthew 5, 3 to 12. That, that's what your challenge is today. That's, that's what I want you to do. That's what God would have us do when we leave here today is to be salty. Be salty. Proclaim the kingdom with your life. Proclaim the kingdom with your words. And if you're not a Christian here today, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that Jesus is offering you a hope and a salvation that does not depend on your own morality. This is really important. Jesus is offering you a hope and a life that doesn't depend on your own morality. Because I was there. I wasn't always a pastor. I wasn't always a Christian. And I was living a life that was dependent on my own sense of morality. How I felt about myself was, was determined by how I lived in accordance with what my particular values were of the time. And that got really old. And I tried to fill that sense of morality and that sense of hopelessness with all sorts of things. And I, it was tiring, it was exhausting. And then I heard about a guy named Jesus who offers me a righteousness through what he did on the cross. So I don't have to see which way the wind is blowing in culture to know uh, what, my, what my moral cue is for the weak. Because that's where we are today, right? I don't have to depend on what, what culture tells me is right or what culture tells me is wrong. I have something that is firm. And all you have to do is accept that. And today, this is awesome, I'm excited. We have someone who wants to accept that. I'm going uh, to ask Jessica Stoffer to come up to the front. And then I'm going to ask for, for any of the people that have been in, in our Tuesday night or Thursday night small group, I'm also going to ask you to come up front too. So if you will come up, that will be amazing. Jessica Stoffer. Um, her and Chris have been here at Westway for four months. And very quickly after they got here, they were invited, they were invited to join, join one of the small groups that, that my wife and I lead on Tuesday nights. And very quickly, they were assimilated and welcomed and loved by by the people that you see here on the stage. 
And the neat thing is, is there's probably about a half dozen other people that could be up here right now. Um, I think the first or second weekend they were here, um, Scott and Jill, they were sitting with Scott and Jill at one of the after church potluck things that we had had. I've heard that Dave Robinson sees Chris occasionally at the Y. I just found out the other day, because Chris, Chris told me that um, they got together um, the other day with uh, Austin Peterson and Michaela Janice. See, Jess has had a ton of people pour Jesus into her life. Just in four months. Like, this is, this is where we're at after, after four months. And what I want you to know is, is discipleship is a group effort. Some of us have, have been discipled and led to Christ by one person. And, I, and I, I'm not minimizing that, and I would never minimize that in any way, shape, or form. And I just think this is really kind of cool. That multiple people have decided to be in relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus. And just be salty. (laughs) Invite them over and talk to them and spend time with them. And one of my favorite things about, like, I love everybody in this group, even you, Drew. Um, I love everybody in this group. But one of the really neat things that's happened over the past couple months is, this is Danielle Thompson. I don't know if you can see her. You can wave. See, This is Danielle Thompson. Her and her husband, Justin, you guys have been here for two months. And what I... What I've seen is people who are here for two months, like, they've gotten together with Chris and Jess. They've had them over to their house. They've been over to their house. And Danielle and Justin are newer. They're not even members. How does this, like, how does this work? And this is what discipleship looks like. This is what discipleship can look like. If we collectively, as a body are like all of these lights. And we decide that we're going to be a light in our community. When new people come here on a Sunday morning, like this is what can happen. And it's so neat to be a part of it. It's so neat to see it taking place. And I'm so encouraged by it. So over the past... Four months. We've Ann and I have been talking with with Chris and Jess. We've been talking with Jess in particular. Like, what are you hearing about Jesus in all of this? What's going on in your life? And we had a meal with them about a month and a half ago, and then got together with them again. And I think it was last Saturday night, a week ago Saturday. And I just said, well. Jess, I just have one question. We sat down at our table, and I said, Jess, I have one question for you. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And she said, yes. And I'm like, okay, then what are you waiting for? Like, let's just, let's just do this. So what I asked Jess to do was just to share with you all why she has come to this point 
And then we're going to sing a song and Jess is going to get baptized this morning. So she's got it written down on her phone, right? Because that's what millennials do. So we're going to give her a pass and let her read off her phone. Thanks. My life before becoming a Christian had no purpose. I was a slave to sin and rejected God, yet I still had a desire for something meaningful. I attempted to fill the void with partying, philosophy, and other intellectual pursuits to find the meaning of life. My walk with Christ began four months ago. Jesus saved me from myself and gave me freedom, fulfillment, peace, and purpose. Today I open my heart and declare Jesus as my Savior and Lord. My faith has given my life direction, and I'm excited to receive the Holy Spirit and take the next steps in my journey with the Lord. So let's pray together, shall we? Um, Father, we are thankful for this moment. We're thankful for the way that you work in, in our lives, and you're working in our church, and you're working through different people that are connected to our body. And I pray, God, that we would leave here ready to do your work, that we would understand the mission is to proclaim your son Jesus as Lord. And we do that best when we do it together. So we're thankful for, uh, for this baptism. We're thankful for this salvation. And we're excited to see what happens next at Westway Christian Church. And it's in your sons and we pray. Amen.